You're listening to Crossings Conversations from Church Divinity School of the Pacific, a show about leaders creating Christian community and sharing God's love. This is Jaconia, uh, Simply J from Church Divinity School of the Pacific, and I'm here with Kathleen Ruiz from Omaha, Nebraska, a second year Laura's student at CDSP. Katie, welcome, and tell us a bit about yourself. Sure. Thank you, Jay. And thank you so much uh, for having me today. So I live in Omaha, Nebraska. I grew up in Pasadena, California, and attended college at Creighton University, where I met my husband. And that's how I ended up in the Midwest. I am a postulant in the Diocese of Nebraska uh, for Holy Orders in my second year, as you said. Um, When I'm not in school, I'm also a lobbyist in the Nebraska legislature, I work mostly with nonprofits on issues ranging from refugee resettlement to juvenile justice, mental health, and child welfare-related issues. Um, my husband and I have a daughter, and we have a cat. Uh, that's what makes up my household here. That's really cool. Uh, so what is one question um, you have encountered in the classroom that has sparked curiosity related to ministry and or your vocation? Yeah, absolutely. So during the fall semester, I took Adapting Christian Formation with Professor Kyle Oliver. And as part of our experience, we were invited to design uh, course material. And I designed a book study for adults using Anthony Ray Hinton's memoir, The Sun Does Shine. That was the basis of our discussion together. Anthony Ray Hinton spent 30 years on Alabama's death row As chair of Balancing the Skills of Justice, a ministry in the Episcopal Diocese of Nebraska focused on developing faithful witnesses uh, to criminal justice reform, it was important to me that the materials that we created for the class would be useful and would be applicable to the ministry I was doing with Balancing the Scales. So we used... The Sun Does Shine as the basis for a book study. We had previously done book club meetings on titles like The New Jim Crow and Just Mercy. And The Sun Does Shine was a great way to, because it's a firsthand account of how the criminal justice system, particularly as it relates to capital punishment, is broken and the role that systemic racism plays in determining whether those who are accused of crimes live or die. So in designing the book study, I relied heavily on the work of Anne Streety Wimberly and her concept of story linking um, in one of the texts uh, on African-American Christian education as the basis for our study. So together we linked the stories in the Bible, Joseph in prison and the imprisonment of Paul and Silas in the New Testament and Acts to link their stories in the Bible with Anthony Ray Hinton's story and ultimately our stories. We ended our time together designing greeting cards for individuals in Nebraska's prisons, including on death row. So we had a whole bunch of stamps and markers and pencils, and together we created uh, greeting cards and sent them out uh, to folks after the event. So this is a study that we hope to offer again in other parishes in the diocese um, in the Easter season. Okay, so if I hear you right, your uh, vocation will be more of an interplay between the pulpit and uh, a ministry aimed at restoring human dignity, right? Yes, 
Yeah, okay. that's yes, absolutely. This week I attended Ash Wednesday services with my family as uh, many uh, likely did. And uh, we read from Isaiah 58 and it was a really great example for me of how I view my call. So Isaiah says, you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to live in. And uh, this passage reminded me of a mural that was at the St. Benedict Monastery and Retreat Center in Schuyler, Nebraska, where I did my vocational retreat for the diocese a few years ago. And in the mural is a picture of Miriam, and she's standing in the middle of the Red Sea. And it's not so much she's holding up her tambourine. Um, It's very clear that Uh, it's Miriam that we're looking at. And yet the artistic rendering, which has a lot of really bright, vivid rainbow colors, makes her appear as not so much that she's crossing the Red Sea, but that she is standing in the middle and repairing it. Um, There's barbed wire that crisscrosses the bottom of the scene. And yet she's disrupting the damaged barbs that are there, the twisted wire at the bottom. So then and now I see myself as a repairer of the breach. Um, And for me, repair looks like standing in the breach and refusing to look away even when it's easier and less painful to look away or to do something else. It's standing there firm um, with the people who are on the underside of so many of our systems um, that's where I feel called to stand um, and to preach. That's really cool. Um, now, um, what is one event and or issue happening in the world that has impacted how you view ministry today? Yeah, so um, for me, ever since I was in middle school, the issue, the organizing issue has been the death penalty and the abolition of the death penalty. So I remember in 2001, watching the video coverage of Timothy McVeigh's execution and getting down on my knees and praying for mercy for Timothy McVeigh, for all of the people implicated in the execution, and especially for the victims of the Oklahoma City bombing that I had watched on TV uh, several years earlier when I was homesick from school. In high school, I thought I would be an attorney that would represent individuals on death row. And in college, I took a course, Faith and Political Action, which changed the trajectory of my life and my ministry. So as part of that course, I worked with Nebraskans against the death penalty and a local Roman Catholic nonprofit organization to organize around raising awareness on the Catholic Church's position on the death penalty. So as part of that, we met with then Archbishop of Omaha, Eldon Curtis, to encourage him to uh, submit a pastoral letter to all of the area congregations in support of the repeal of the death penalty. And we visited individuals on Nebraska's death row. And after my class was over, I continued as a student organizer for Nebraskans Against the Death Penalty, where I organized letter writing events um, to build up grassroots support for death penalty abolition in Nebraska and toy drives for children of incarcerated parents. 
my husband and I got married. We moved away for a couple years. And when we came back in 2012, um, beginning in 2013, I began working as a legislative aide for a state senator in the Nebraska unicameral legislature. While I was there, Nebraska became the first state, the first Republican state, I might add, uh, in 30 years to repeal the death penalty. While I was working for uh, my senator, I wrote floor speeches, I responded to constituents, and I helped with floor strategy. I still have a signed copy of the bill that the sponsor, Senator Ernie Chambers, who is Nebraska's longest-serving state senator, he signed for me a few weeks after the veto override. And I know people listening to this podcast can't see it, but actually you can see behind me is a copy of uh, the bill on my wall. So the success proved short-lived after a referendum removed, uh, reinstated the death penalty on the ballot in 2016. But I still keep the bill copy on my wall to remind me of what's possible. I still hold out hope that Nebraska and so many places in the United States and around the world will open their eyes to the injustice of capital punishment and the great harm it inflicts on all of us when we allow the state to take life in our name. It seems you're so convinced about the dignity of life that you're willing to do anything in your power to uh, do away with the death penalty. Tell us more about why this conviction or where this conviction comes from. Yeah, that's um, a great question. And um, I think a lot of it comes from my maternal grandfather. Um, So when my mom was little, he wrote, my mom's one of eight children. And my grandfather is a plaintiff's attorney for personal or was for a long time. He's retired now a plaintiff attorney for um, personal injury. Uh, He was a personal injury attorney. And he would write my mom and her siblings, children of God letters um, in which he would encourage them and help them to see how they were children of God and called to act as children of God in the world. And that's something that has never left me, that we are all children of God And we are all, as Sister Helen Prejean says, more than the worst thing we've ever done. I've certainly made my share of mistakes. And um, by God's grace, I'm forgiven. And I know that that's true for others, too. And the current systems that we have around criminal justice keep people trapped in the worst thing that they've ever done. That's all we see when there's so much more to each of those broken people, just as there's so much more to us um, than our brokenness. Okay, thank you so much. Um, What has been one creative or experimental ministry opportunity you have explored and or encountered over the last year that has inspired you? Yeah, so I am an Episcopal Evangelism Society or EES grant recipient, And I'm really grateful for the support that Dave Pritchard-Smith and EES has provided me in the past year and made a creative ministry that I'm going to talk about possible. I'm also really grateful to Bishop Scott Barker, my bishop here in Nebraska, who has long supported me and the work of balancing the scales of justice. So this fall, as part of our diocese annual council or annual convention, 
I organized a public witness vigil in support of voting rights restoration for citizens returning from prison. In Nebraska, currently, returning citizens have to wait two years after the completion of their sentence, and that includes any time on parole or probation before they are eligible to vote. It used to be a lifetime ban. We eliminated that about a decade ago. However, with the probation and parole requirements, it means someone could wait 15, 20 plus years before they're eligible to vote, even though they've been living in the community for all of that time. So I worked with a local graphic designer. We designed t-shirts, tote bags, and commemorative posters for the event. In the weeks beforehand, I partnered with ACLU Nebraska to offer an educational webinar to annual council participants to help raise awareness about the discriminatory practice and the ways in which voting rights for people returning from prison goes back to the very founding of Nebraska and is deeply tied to Jim Crow laws here in the state. And I coordinated with local nonprofit organizations to identify system impacted individuals that were willing to join us in the in the vigil. I'm an Oblate candidate at the Benedictine Way, which is a new Episcopal community in Omaha, and I worked with them to design a prayer service as part of our vigil. And with the generous support of EES, I secured a videographer to record the vigil and conduct interviews with participants. Together, the day of the vigil, we designed handwritten posters, which we carried from the half-mile walk from the church basement to the steps of the Nebraska Capitol. In the end, nearly 30 Episcopalians, scientists, journalists, mothers, fathers, parents, deacons, priests, monks, and a bishop joined together as we walked and we sang Amazing Grace. Once we arrived at the Capitol, we heard from Bishop Barker, justice-impacted individuals, and were joined by a state senator who has long supported this issue. And the event for me encapsulates what it means to engage in public ministry as a seeker of justice. So it seems your life revolves around um, dignity of the human nature and its restoration, social justice. Where and how do you see, uh, or where and how do you sense God calling you to live into your vocation uh, beyond your ministry, uh, your seminary experience? Yeah. So, um You know, when I applied for the EES grant, I thought I'd be helping other people find their voices as prophetic witnesses. Um, As a former staff person and as an advocate, I was often used to being the person kind of behind the scenes. Um, And the grant really uh, kind of turned that on its head. And what's been surprising for me, but I imagine is not surprising to God, is that in the process of helping others find their voices, I found mine. Um, With two years left in the low-res MDiv program at CDSP, I'm not sure exactly what shape my ministry will take after graduation. Uh, Professor Oliver's class introduced me to a new type of ministry called Movement Chaplaincy through the work of Faith Matters Network. And then last August, I read with great interest an article in the Episcopal News Service about Nadia Bowles-Weber's installation as a pastor of public witness. So those are some inspiring trends that I hope to continue to explore in my co- coursework and my ministry here in Nebraska over the next four year, few years. 
But I know wherever I go and whatever I do, it'll be as a repairer, as a prophetic witness to the redeeming and restoring love of God. Do you see your ministry uh, going beyond Nebraska and the U.S. into other cultures, probably continents? It's a great question. And, um, you know, I think a part of my heart will always belong to Nebraska. It has been such a welcoming community for uh, myself and for my family. My daughter was born here. My husband was raised here from when he was in second grade. I was actually born in Omaha, but we moved away when I was five. So in many ways, when I started college at Creighton University, it felt like coming home. And one of the joys of my work in the unicameral as a lobbyist is helping to translate some of the uh, unique nature of Nebraska's unicameral. So we're a, we're a one body house. We're officially nonpartisan and helping people understand what that means and harness the power that comes with such a small and unique body. So this session, for example, I've been organizing a series of advocacy trainings for frontline staff with several local nonprofits to help educate and inform them about the political process in Nebraska and how they can get involved and how their voice can really make a difference. So whether my call ends or begins in Nebraska, I know that the people I've met here and the lives that I um, have the people I've gotten to know and uh, the time we've spent together is never going to leave me. What is um, the final word of encouragement you have for those listening to this episode, especially um, the CDSP community? So I want to first by noting that uh, I began seminary in June 2020, so I have never set foot on campus as a CDSP student. I did have the fortune of being able to go on campus for one of the CCDSP weekends in December 2019, but that's the last time that I've been to Berkeley. So I'm really grateful for the flexibility that CDSP's program has offered uh, in allowing my family to remain in Nebraska while I attend seminary, which has been an important priority for me and for my husband. We have a young daughter. And it's also provided me the opportunity to engage in some really rich and meaningful ministry, some of which we've talked about here today. And none of that would have been possible without the low residency program. And I know for some people, a New Year's practice is to choose a word that kind of uh, is their focus for the upcoming year. With the Nebraska legislature starting in January, I usually uh, choose resolutions or words or things like that, not on a typical calendar year. Um, but if I were to select a word that summarizes my year of learning at CDSP and my reason for hope amid so much sorrow and turmoil, it would be solidarity. Indeed, solidarity lies at the heart of my theology. It's through this solidarity it's through the solidarity of Jesus with us that humanity experiences salvation, that I experience salvation. Disappointment, rejection, fear, anger, sadness. These are some of the many emotions those of us at CDSP and around the world are feeling during these difficult times. As we record this episode, we are in a period of grief and transition in our CDSP community and in our world. 
I long deeply for the time where I could meet my classmates face-to-face, and hopefully we get to meet face-to-face one day, Jay, Um, just as my heart aches for peace and justice in the Ukraine, in Afghanistan, and in so many places of hurt and injustice around the world. My heart is weary. I know I'm not alone in that. And yet, amidst the sorrow, pain, and loss, I have hope. I can stand in the gap seeking repair and restoration, knowing that Jesus stood there first. I can rest in the knowledge that the sorrow, pain, and longing I experience is not unknown to God because it was shared by God's own son, Jesus. Jesus is present to our pain. Let us not look away. That's well said. As Jesus said, um, in this world you'll have trouble, but take heart. You'll overcome for overcome. So, uh, Katie, uh, thanks so much for joining us on Closing Conversations. And uh, I just want to wish you a wonderful weekend. I know you are getting into the evening. So enjoy your weekend before you get into another grueling week. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. So Thank you for having me. Crossings Conversations is a co-production of Church Divinity School of the Pacific and Trinity Church Wall Street. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or share it with a colleague. You can learn more about the only Episcopal seminary on the West Coast and subscribe to Crossings Magazine at cdsp.edu.